mental health and well-being, being able to sort of work collaboratively with people, especially when things get hard, I think is is going to become even more important as we move into a hybrid model where sometimes not everybody's together. Those moments where people are together are going to become even more meaningful and more powerful and are going to be more necessary perhaps than they were when we took it for granted. Welcome folks, Mike, Keith, excited and it's super fun to have you folks for on this podcast for multiple reasons. Uh, this is one of a kind podcast that the AC is coming out with, with the support from folks like you. Waterloo Grit is what it's titled. And uh, I'm really, really excited about uh, some of the conversations uh, that we're going to cover today. Uh, but before we get started, uh, would love for you folks to give our audience a bit of your background, which uh, essentially covers a little bit of your persona, your personal lives, and also what you do in your corresponding organizations at uh, RT Park and JLL. I'll, I'll let Mike start us off there. I'll, I'll let him go first. He's more important than I am. <laughs> that is absolutely not true, but uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm Mike Pereira. Uh, Jay, as you mentioned, I manage the research and technology park for the University of Waterloo. Um, so we're one of the largest research parks in North America. It's about a million square feet almost. And it ranges from big, big companies like SAP and Open Text all the way down to, you know, one person startups that are working out of the AC. So it's a pretty cool, uh, it's a pretty cool place. And my job is to sort of help bring in tenants and create a bit of a culture and an atmosphere here. And then, uh, in the personal side, I guess before I came to the park, I actually worked for the accelerator center. So I have a really strong tie to the AC too. And then, uh, on the personal side, I have three kids and uh, do a lot of volunteering and kind of cool, fun stuff here in uh, in the Waterloo community. Yeah, like I said, uh, I'm Keith Shapard. I am with JLL Canada. We just opened the new Southwestern operations for JLL. JLL is a national real estate company that really um, focuses on health and well-being, as well as uh, building a better future with some green initiatives of our of our own and. We're also in the technology sector um, as well, looking at technology and how it can change real estate for the better and for the future. A um, little bit about myself. I was born, bred, and wheat-fed in northern Alberta and made my way to Kitchener-Waterloo to work in this kind of tech ecosystem. We have such a great tech ecosystem here. So had a chance to um, be entrenched in that with a company locally called 180 here. Um, through that, um, Knew of Mitch Blaine and Chris Kotseff, who are our senior partners here with JLL Southwestern Ontario, um, was on kind of my second mini retirement of life and an opportunity came to join them and work with tech companies to find office space. So bringing it full circle. So coming back to the side and like Mike said, it's very similar to helping technology companies find space and room to grow here in KW in their tech scene. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for sharing your background. You know, a couple of the points that you folks touched upon in your introduction would have on any other day sounded like mundane words, but today, two years in, and I can't believe it's actually two years, right? In January, all of us said, oh, 2021, this thing is going to go away. We're going to come out of lockdown 18 months in. Here we are close to 24 months, and, um, and we're still figuring out how to deal with this. But the two words that you folks touched upon were technology and space. And we couldn't have had the honor and the luxury of two bigger, better experts than the two of you uh, to give potentially diverse perspective on what, what is space, right? It looks like that that definition today is, is just gone out of the window, what, what it used to be. So I'd love to hear your definition of what is space as you see it. Yeah, I'll take this one. Yeah, I'll take this one here. Um, so space in my mind and, and more particularly office space is kind of what I'll focus on uh, individually here is uh, as we go forward, I think it's going to be a less rigid space than traditional models. I think you're going to have more transient spaces within the office that will allow you to facilitate different types of work, whether that is, you know, a quiet section in the office that will give you the heads down work. Um, a lounge section that will really facilitate conversations and expand your collaboration. 
or there's going to be kind of your breakout sessions, whether that's in a in a large open space uh, where you can have some collaboration and some video conferencing like we're doing now, or whether that's a closed door kind of. So it, I'm really excited for the future of office space and for spaces in general. And I think moving forward, having different spaces to accommodate different types of things is going to be pivotal, as well as I, you're going to start to see companies switch to optimizing the office space, not just for production and work, but for mental health and wellness. Um, throughout the pandemic, we've realized that, hey, you know what, having the ability to work from home and getting up from my desk and going out for that run or that walk for just a little mental health break, I feel you're going to get that incorporated into the more corporate setting and where that's going to become a main focus as companies kind of start their navigation of re return to the office, whatever the office space may look like. Yeah, I think it's, you know, for me, it's always been rooted in kind of the team and the community space, right, around the idea of bringing people together, you know, and I, I should clarify, I've had like 300 different jobs, probably, uh, everything from working in call centers to being an instructor therapist with kids with autism to uh, working on campuses, working with tech companies to large enterprise. And every time, even if the role that I was working on didn't require me to be in an office setting. Um, there was still benefits to being in an office setting because of the people you were with and the opportunity to connect. You know, I worked in a call center once and there was inherently nothing about the job that required me to be in an office. Like today you could easily do that job from home hmm. because it required nothing. But we're, anybody who's working in a call center was who it's, it's an awfully d degrading job sometimes to be taking verbal abuse from people constantly and having a team that you felt like you were really connected with, or you could just hang up the phone and be like, ah, oh, that was awful. I just need to decompress. And someone say, yeah, I feel you. Mm -hmm. I, I hear that. Um, really, really was what kind of got you through the day. And so I think, you know, for me, people are, everything we're hearing, whether it's in the research park or in the community is, has been, people are still craving, that opportunity to connect with people, to have those empathetic moments, to have those pieces. And Keith, I think you pointed out really well around mental health and well-being, mm -hmm. being able to sort of work collaboratively with people, especially when things get hard, I think is, is going to become even more important as we move into a hybrid model where sometimes not everybody's together. Those moments where people are together mm -hmm. are going to become even more meaningful and more powerful and are going to be more necessary perhaps than they were when we took it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent points, right? One of the things we're struggling with, and I guess everybody is at the AC, is the, the tenets that drive culture you know, one intrinsically thinks that culture has to do with behavioral attitudes, et cetera. And, and we're, I think the whole world is realizing that's, that that physical space plays such a big role. The, the, the serendipity of things happening at the water cooler, et cetera, right? Um, and it really reshapes and shapes culture to a degree that you may or may not have control over. In the, the worlds that both of you come from, right? Uh, and I'll start with you, Keith. The world that you come from has an element of management of space, right? That's, that's what you guys are, are really good at as an institution, right? So how do you take, uh, how, how do you bring new flavors of driving culture while focusing on space management uh, in, in, in a post-COVID world? Yeah, I, I think you can really go to the and degree of, of identifying what you want to be as, as a company. And there's many different building standards you can achieve that show that you as a company are, are in tune with that. Um, the well building accreditation is something that's new and coming up. Um, again, focuses a lot on mental health and wellness, but having the flexibility within the work environment to, you know what, I'm cold sitting at this desk. I want to be able to pick up and go to a desk that's a bit warmer, right? So. Um, taking into account those types of things, encouraging healthy eating and living with maybe a fitness center or, you know, changing the, the vending machine with all the sugary drinks in it to something that dispenses apples for free, something like that. You know, there's, there's little things you can do and it really comes from kind of top management down. And like Mike says, for different types of companies, you're going to facilitate different types of spaces. You know, a call center might not be a huge collaboration space. But there's something to be said about walking across, tapping a co-worker on the shoulder and saying, hey, I really need your help with this. So 
Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if that really answered your question, but I, I, again, I feel that um, the rigidity is really going to go by the wayside. Um, yeah. As Mike said, there's going to be people that want to be in the office every day of the week, mm -hmm. and you're going to have set up desks for them. You're going to have desks for them. You're going to have 20, 30, 40%. And again, these numbers are always changing, and we'll, we'll get a better understanding when the larger companies go back. But you're going to have 20 to 30% of these people that want to come in two, three days a week. So now for those 20 to 30 people, I need 15 desks based on my math because half of them are going to be in and half of them aren't. Um, but just having someone somewhere for those people to go and having, again, the space to really optimize what you as a company want to get out of your workers. Um, yeah. There's simple things such as natural light. And, and we can go on. And there's a principle in, that JLL has and many different industries have, um, I'm sorry, many different companies in the real estate industry have. It's called the 330-300 rule. You spend about $3 of your rent is on utilities. So by going into lead building, yes, you can save money, but it's going to be on that $3 scale. $30 is what we say is rent. So $30 is what you're spending per square foot on rent. So yes, you could find a building that's maybe two or $3 cheaper, but again, you're not pulling the biggest lever. The biggest lever companies have is your staff costs about $300 per square foot. And if I can create a space that optimizes the work they can do and the productivity they have and their mental health and well-being, which is in tune to their productivity, then we can really get the most out of our space and out of our staff. So I, I think that's going to be the, the mentality moving forward. Mm. We're going to have space. It's going to be more meaningful and it's going to be more meaningful to our employees to get the best production out of them and to have happy employees. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Interesting. Yeah, we'll come back to that. that you touched upon a topic which, you know, which I'd love to explore a little more, which is the concept of, customization right and i think that's there's certainly room for building elements of service quality based off of customization so we'll come back to that uh mike i had a i had a question for you because you are in a very interesting place right you're bang in the middle of here's this behemoth called the university of waterloo which which arguably has a ton of innovation coming out of it and at the mm -hmm. other end um physical spaces that have a fair amount of diversity, right? Folks like the AC, there are not-for-profit organizations, etc. How do you sort of balance the two while you're straddled with the with, with two variables that are, I guess, sort of opposing, right? One is, hey, I need to hit capacity. I need to make sure that people see value in these in the in, in the park. Um, and at the other end, uh, of all things, entrepreneurship, innovation, etc., has reasonably thrived in a in a remote environment, right? So, how, how do you sort of balance these two juxtaposing forces? Well, to me, it's interesting, and I don't know if this will quite answer it, because um, I mean, my my role, some of it isn't mine to balance, and and so I don't want to overstate what I do. But what's really been interesting to me on the entrepreneurship side is the way that entrepreneurship has shifted since the parks establishment. So, you know, when RNT Park started out, almost everything was perceived to be software related and ICT related. Um, all the buildings were foreseen to be class A office space. But if you look at our entrepreneur ecosystem and our startup ecosystem, it's shifted really hard in the last decade into mm -hmm. hardware and now increasingly into healthcare and life sciences. What I think is really interesting about this kind of when we talk about hybrid is that if you look at companies um, that are getting more into hardware and life sciences spaces, you're going to have part of your workforce that is not going to have remote options. You can't do bench testing at someone's basement. Their home insurance probably isn't going to cover it. Um, you're not going to be able to do cell research mm -hmm. at home and stuff. So you're going to have people who aren't necessarily able, especially in companies that are doing any kind of manufacturing or assembly Part of your workforce isn't going to have that hybrid and remote approach. And one of the big questions I think we're going to need to look at is what happens as our ecosystem shifts into more hardware, more life sciences, more bio, yeah. where the type of work doesn't allow everyone the same flexibility. How are companies going to respond to that? Because I think it's going to be really interesting. We even saw that happen with a tenant in the park. 
has a global presence and not here in Ontario, but other places had employees who could not work from home. They were mm. warehouse employees. And the company's global reaction was, I don't care what position you're in, you're in the office 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, the Ontario office had to push back and say, well, actually, that would be against the law at the moment in Ontario. We can't do that. But one of the big questions on my mind is, is how is this going to play out from an equity standpoint in terms of, I don't know that everyone's going to get treated equally yeah. when it comes to hybrid and what are the responsibilities we have to think through that in terms of how is our work structure affecting people and creating perhaps re- creating new inequities and, and then reinforcing old inequities. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great topic. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, the, the folks from JLL and I were on an interesting conversation that touched upon this and I'd love to get your opinions on this, right? If you run an organization where policy dictates um, a hybrid model wherein you have X amount of days for employees to uh, work from home and Y amount of days where you are required to come in. And the day that you're required to come in, you want to drive the whole organization to be there as opposed to keeping it flexible. And in, in both those options, option one being, hey, it's it's a two-to-one model. Um, choose the day that you want to come in and the other two days you work from home versus the option where you're, you're, you know, quote unquote, mandated to come in on a particular day. Both those leads to, like you said, inequities, right? One of them clearly that uh, organizations are beginning to discover is uh, uh, inequality of gender. Um, yeah. One of the big tech firms in, in the U.S. discovered very quickly that uh, women tend, you know, arguably they take uh, more responsibility both at home as well as at work they tend to take the the work from home day either on a Monday or a Friday. And voila, before you know it, on a Wednesday or a Thursday, you have a, a you have disparity as far as gender is concerned. Do you folks have a viewpoint on how do you drive this, right? Do you do you mandate it or do you create an institution that is centered around the employee as opposed to the other way around? Yeah, I, I, I firmly believe there are th- things you can put in place that benefit all employees. We just had a recent uh, local company here actually take on more space to facilitate a daycare. So those folks that could had childcare issues could bring their child into the daycare that's provided by the employer. Um, mm-hmm. I think as we move forward, now you're going to start maybe seeing landlords provide such services. So there are services, and again, this comes back to kind of the health and wellness piece. You know, If I could go to work and drop my child off and let's say the main floor and I work on the third floor and I can pop down at any time if there's an issue and, you know, heaven, heaven, something happens, I just run down and help take care of it and perhaps take them home. So I I think you're going to get creative solutions like that, that will try to encompass everyone and help out those folks that are maybe marginalized by certain aspects of of the job. Got it. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things I've been saying for a while now is we're heading for a, I think there's a real misalignment between what employees are thinking hybrid means and what employers are thinking hybrid means. And and we're going to have, I think, a bit of an uneasy transition as we start to navigate some of that, you know, what does the company need? What do teams need? And then what do individuals need? Right. Um, and I don't, I don't think we've really kind of addressed that misalignment particularly well yet. Mm. Um, you know, and, and one of the things I've often been thinking about is uh, there was an old thing an old story about campus design around where to put walkways. And someone said, don't put any walkways in. Just wait and see where people wear down the grass and put the walkway in after, right? Wait wait and see what happens before. Instead of dictating what people are going to do, let's right. see what kind of habits. Because in a lot of co-working spaces, one of the things I find is despite having the ability to work almost anywhere in an 80,000 square foot space, most people kind of gravitate toward the same spot over time. And then they gravitate into small groups of people they like working with and collaborating with. And so part of me almost feels like, you know, instead of getting super, super predictive about it or really um, prescriptive about it, let's maybe wait and see where those desire paths are, where, where the grass gets trampled down a little bit 
and then put the walkways in there and really optimize it that way. Nice. Um, but I think that's, that takes time, right? And yep. not everybody wants, not everybody's comfortable with just a bit of a like, well, let's just see what people do. Right. If we give them the opportunity to beat their own path a little bit and then we'll find out what works best. Yeah. That's a great story. It makes me wonder. I mean, I have this friend in, um, in grad school and when we graduated, this guy had just two lines in the yearbook and he said, uh, it was so deep when I think about it back now, based off of your, your, the experience that you shared, Mike, about the campus. And he said, four or two years later, yellow school bus, willing sheep. Thank you. Right? That was it. It was pretty much his way of saying, are you telling me to think versus are you going to lead the way and tell me where to go? Right? Um, mm. And in the case of co-working, or even organizations, I suppose, they're, they're, like you said, there's a bit of a flux in terms of being given direction versus leadership saying, well, let me use this dipstick to figure out what is the path that I need to, to course out. Um, so Keith, I mean, you touched upon mental health, right? Um, a couple of times, and it, I, it's such an important topic. Um, do you folks feel like the aspect of mental health was always there? with organizations and corporations didn't necessarily have the need to address, but remote work and, you know, stress uh, in terms of Zoom exhaustion, et cetera, has exacerbated that and now we need to address it? Or, or is it a new thing? No, I, I think it's always been there. I mean, much like any mental health topic, it's something that's definitely come out of to fruition over the last 10, 15 years and become in the main spotlight. Um, you did see progressive companies back in the day really take into account mental health. You see like Blackberry who had uh, worship centers, who had uh, quiet rooms and stuff like that. So some companies that do it in a particular way are the ones that were really in tuned early on, did it well. Um, mm. Like, let's be honest, there's no, there's no, like randomness about what Google does in its offices, you know, the scooters, the slides, that kind of stuff. It's all on purpose and it's all based on really good research. And I mean, the Coles notes of the research is if, if people are happy at work, have that camaraderie, have that kind of support system that Mike touched on mm -hmm. and have the flexibility to, you know, if I feel like riding a scooter down the hallway and it makes me happy for 10 minutes and I jump back to my desk, I'm more than likely going to do some of my most motivated and inspired work yep. because I had that little release. Um, even have some companies going as far as providing nap pods as opposed to coffee. So if you wanted to have a 10, 20 minute coffee break, you go to the nap pods. And there's tons of research to say that nap, 20 minutes naps are way more effective at restoring your energy, making you more focused and allowing you to produce better quality work. So it's just getting in tune with the research and it's like anything, you know, these things cost money in order to implement and not everyone's going to do it. Um, but the ones who are doing it are typically your, your forefronts, like BlackBerry back in the day, um, Google now. Uh, I'm sure if you walked into any other big uh, Facebook or, or what, Amazon's office, you'll get a very similar vibe to Google. And it, it's not by mistake. It's, it's very strategic. And it's, again, to get the most out of their employees and to support them in a way that other companies may not. And that's their kind of their stake in the ground. And that's why Google's so effective at maintaining employees. Hmm. I think one thing that maybe has changed a bit to your point, Jay, is the way that a lot of the work that we weren't really aware was happening of teams kind of supporting each other. Like we knew that teams supported each other, but the impacts of mental health became really apparent when that got sort of stripped away during the pandemic mm. and people didn't have that, you know, person right beside them, that sort of, you know, that coworker who was like a, like a true partner or like a really close friend and teams didn't bond in the same way to have that kind of pulled out so quickly. Um, I think it exposed the, the degree to which companies really relied on team dynamics as a mental health strategy. They just didn't call it that necessarily, yeah, yeah. but you know, that was such a crucial part to everyone kind of being happy in their work and feeling like they could get through hard, hard things and feeling like they could come together as a group um, was really in those small interactions and sort of micro interactions 
that kind of got pulled away very quickly and unexpectedly and without a great replacement. And and now I think teams are being like, oh, wow, there was a lot going on in our physical space that we weren't really tracking, but it turns out it was really, really important. And that to me, I th- but I would agree with Keith. It's a lot of companies have been talking about mental health and wellness for a really long time. Uh, like the good ones were, were on this, yeah. you know, years ago. Um, but I think the pandemic really put a laser spotlight on, on this topic as, as, uh, as a gap that we're going to need to address even more so going forward. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's an interesting point. You touched upon coffee and I was reminded of this fascinating story. I don't know if you guys know this. Um, so it turns out, so, so number one, turns out coffee played an incredible role in driving corporate capitalism. And there's this amazing little tidbit of a story where uh, in uh, during the Second World War, um, you know, after there was a realization of shortage of staff, um, a, a, a necktie weaver in Denver, uh, a company called Wigwam, decided to recruit um, women to, you know, because they needed intricate hand-based weaving to... Uh, uh, to backfill the, the lack of resources that they had. And productivity went through the roof. Somewhere at about noontime, it used to fall off. So management decided to introduce this concept of, you know, a break. I spoke to the staff, and turns out that the staff uh, had feedback that, you know, the, the, the break works great. And they introduced uh, coffee during the break. Very quickly, they noticed that right after that, productivity went through the roof again. Late in the afternoon, they introduced a coffee break again. Productivity went back through the roof. And coffee became a a, a catalytic driver to the point that coffee breaks are now a norm, right? It's a thing. Um, There's another underlying reason, which is that coffee is a, turns out as a caffeine is a hallucinogen. Uh, That's another conversation for another day. But do you think, you know, little snippets of this type will start to emerge in the post-pandemic world? I mean, you touched upon a couple of them, Keith. Um, uh, you know, daycare, etc. cetera. Uh, so do you think we'll, we'll start to see something new and interesting of this nature? Yeah, I, I think you will. And uh, whether or not that's the company offering it themselves, like the company I mentioned with the daycare, or whether landlords start using it as an amenity in the building to attract tenants to their building um, can both be utilized. Uh, daycares will be interesting ones. Um, uh, another one that's very common now and now is a issue due to the pandemic is dogs are used to their owners being home all the time. And now when they go back to work, they'll have separation anxiety. So now dog daycares are a thing, right? Like let's put a dog daycare in our office. Um, so there's going to be a, a big opportunity to provide services around the amenity of what is a building. I, I think the stat is we spend 90% of our days in a built environment. So how do you make that built environment as meaningful as possible to someone's physical, mental, emotional health while getting the best productivity out of them? Again, and I I know I'm gonna beat these topics to to death here, but I think that's really what it's about, right? It's a mathematical equation. Companies aren't gonna do something that doesn't mathematically give them any benefit back, but you will find some trend centers that say, you know what, we see the value in this. There's deep research in this. And we're going to go ahead and do it, right? And uh, it's just a matter of being in tune to what your your staff want. And like Mike said, you know, find out what those desire lines are. Like, is your average age of your staff in the mid-30s or is it in the mid-40s? So do I need a doggy daycare or an actual daycare? Like, um, so I think it's more so just not not necessarily polling or surveying is a poor word to use. I, I just have open, active discussions with your staff and say, you know, what, what do you guys need? What type of company are we even? You know, if we're like Mike said, a, a hardware company and our average age of our staff is 35, well, okay, maybe we don't need the nap pods because these guys aren't into napping. They're more into, let's have a Lego room, you know, like whatever it may be, something to drive, in, like inspire, inspire them to do whatever they may like. And 
I, I see Mike nodding, so I, I feel like he has some ideas of what kind of amenities you'd put in. No, I, I'm nodding because the, the line I think that, that st- jumped out at me was just have conversations with your employees. And it's like, mm. you know what? Just do that all the freaking time. <laughs> um, like, don't don't even don't do it once. Don't do it twice. But have an ongoing conversation about what kind of company are we? What do you need? What do we need? And how do we how do we bridge those things together? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's it's I mean, honestly, it's sometimes I think it is really that simple. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, uh, but it was, it was interesting though, Jay, when you were talking about the coffee thing, I mean, what'll be interesting to see, I don't know if you know the, uh, the story of the Hawthorne effect. No, no. You to hear that. So years ago, uh, a company started experimenting with, uh, lighting to see if lighting changes increase productivity. Mm-hmm. So they would like raise the lights or lower the lights and o- over like a course of a week or so, they figured out that no matter what they did, productivity went up. Like didn't matter where the lighting was set at, productivity went up. And and what ended up happening was uh, the employees were just so happy that anybody was paying attention to the working conditions at all. Wow. That they they were they you know so they were trying to find these things, and it turned out that just paying attention to your employees' well being <laughs> and working conditions is what actually got them more motivated. Not the level of the lighting, not the particulars, but right. just the fact that you showed enough compassion for. How do we make a better working environment? And and I mean, I'm I'm sort of twisting the the, the metaphor the, the the story a little bit there because they were trying to figure out if could we adjust the lighting to make people work harder. Sure. But I think the lesson of it is is people just felt like they were willing to do more if they by by signs the company showed that they mm-hmm. were concerned about the work environment. Um. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see kind of what what things come out of that. Like, you know, are the amenities themselves the thing that are really resonating, or is it just the fact that the company's willing to try and and invest and make mm-hmm. a difference, even if they maybe get it wrong here and there? And that's one of those things where I think it's important that people make the effort yep. earnestly and have those ongoing conversations. Um. Yeah. Yeah, and to add to that, if I may. Um... I think not only just adding to that, but at the end of the day, whether your company goes one direction or the other, the management of that company needs to decide what's for them. And you're not going to please everyone, unfortunately, but this will allow people to go and find a company that does align with their personal values as well as what kind of work they want to do. Mm. Um, and you know, it, that's the pie in the sky dream. And they say, when you work for something you love doing, you never work a day in your life. But, um, so that's the alignment and, my fear is that companies don't try to differentiate or take the time to listen to employees mm-hmm. and employees become a commodity sitting at home. If I'm a programmer on my laptop at home and I get offered $5,000 to work at my same desk and right in front of my same TV, right beside my same couch, what's stopping me from doing it if you as a company is not providing me anything else? Yeah. So yeah. those are the companies and I think a lot of companies are going to lose out because they don't take the time to listen and put into place an action plan. And like Mike said, um, in regards to the lighting, there's definitely research to show what's the ample perfect lighting for people to get work done. <laughs> right. But yeah. it, like you said, th- that's one piece of the puzzle. Like uh, the well accreditation for a building is a hundred bullet points and you check a hundred bullet points. You need a minimum of 60 to get the, the base, but there's literally hundreds of things you can do in your office space that will drive productivity. And, and at the end of the day, productivity and employee satisfaction. So there's a bunch of different levers. And I think the companies that think that they're just going to reopen the doors and nothing's going to change as far as what they provide for the employees, as far as an experience in the office, mm-hmm. support from the office or from home. And that's the tough thing to figure out. How do we support people in our office the hybrid workers and the ones that work from home and how do we make them all come in and buy into our company vision and our culture. And that's going to be the biggest moving piece. And again, open, honest conversation with your employees is my, in my view. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, the simplicity with which you put it across, Mike, is very endearing. At the end of the day, employees value a, a, a mechanism for feedback much more than the actual intervention itself, right? That, that's, that's a great learning for, you know, the entrepreneurs out there who eventually listen to this podcast. 
and, and you spoke about two different things, right? And I'd love to see if, if both your opinions tangentially go diverse. So let me pose it, which is given that the legal structures that you both represent have a not-for-profit and a for-profit motive, the, the articulation of the utilization of space does it differ? So, for example, you know the three thirty three hundred that you spoke about, Keith. Um, going forward, are we going to see extraction of revenue from real estate spaces? You know, pre pre COVID, pre future work being X, and going forward, now the metrics are around productivity because a lot of these spaces you may or may not get direct tangible revenue, right? In, 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 in your world and in my in your world, do you see a not-for-profit agenda as a legal structure driving utilization of utilization of space and capacity in a very different way? What, what would your worlds be like? Uh, I'll let Mike kick this one off here. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, for for us at the university, I, and I've said this a lot, like the value of the research park isn't on the revenue that the park generates. I mean, that's, it's fine. It generates revenue, but the value is the interactions that it fosters mm -hmm. with the university and with the community. Right. So I, I look at the research park as a physical space and I say, you know, the university, the tenants and the community should all realize benefit from having a research park. All mm -hmm. the, the, there should be that three-way value chain, right. Of, the university should see benefits through those interactions, whether it's research partnerships or our students being able to have good access to high quality jobs and our alumni going out and working for the companies that are locating close. Those to me are as if not more powerful than the revenue side of it, right? I mean, it's really about what do we catalyze through the research park and, and the activities far more than just saying, hey, we've got some space, do you wanna rent it? Because mm -hmm. um, that, that to me isn't the activity of the research park so for me, and I, I think that comes back to a lot of, of the spaces and a lot of the changes in the spaces we're seeing. If you look at whether it's research parks or innovation districts mm -hmm. across the world, it's really about taking all of those ingredients and making it equal more than the sum of its parts, right? It's not mm -hmm. just about the buildings or the people or the products or the, it's all of those things coming together to create something that really couldn't be created by any individual element on its own. So I don't know if that actually answers your question, but to me, it's got to be more than just the the, the pure transactional side of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, honestly, I, would, I agree with Mike a lot. I think moving forward, if you're a landlord looking at an office building that's half leased right now, and you're like, what do I do with it? I mean, first, there's a bigger conversation about highest and best use for the building, if you could change what the use is, if you can make sort of a mixed development there, or what it may be. But at the end of the day, you need your building or technology park to foster a, a particular environment. And what environment you portray your building to be, you know, it's funny when we do a new listing, we always give an, uh, an identity to the building. So, you know, this building's sleek and whatnot, we're going to call it, call it Harvey Spectre. And that's the image we really go with. So, you have your image, you cater to the types of companies that would want to go in there. And like Mike said, it, it's more of a partnership. Hey guys, this is what we can offer you. Um, we're going to be at competitive rates based on the market because no one's going to pay an absorbent amount of money more for a building that aligns with you than a building that doesn't, right? So mm -hmm. does this building align with you as an individual and you as a company? Because that's going to be a big determination if you know, you'll get the value out of this building. And align, landlords aligning themselves with companies and being transparent about, hey, this is my building. This is my vision for this building. These are what type of tenants I think would do well in this building. I think being honest with yourself about that is where you're going to find the most traction and success. Mm -hmm. um, up at the university park, you know, they want tech companies in there. You know, they could probably get high rents from a call center, but that's something not of interest to the university because it doesn't add to the 
the environment there that they're trying to foster. So I think you got to be really mindful of that moving forward as a landlord. And then taking that old antiquated space or that space that just doesn't really have the flair and then giving it something to the pieces of, you know, the daycares, the dodgy daycares, or what kind of amenity can I put in here that'll raise the value of my building to make people want to come here just based on what the building is. If I could build a building anywhere, but if it has no story or no background, and I'm just like, here's an office, use it, here's the price, yeah. and it doesn't really offer me anything as far as amenities or anything, you're, you're never going to lease up, you're never going to have success with that building. So mm-hmm. it's, it's taking, whenever we have big downturns like this, and we've seen it when BlackBerry kind of did what it did back in, in the day, you know, there comes a flood of supply and what's going to lease up first is that, that space or that building that has that story, has the space in it that is already pre-built out with the bells and the whistles and the amenities. And those are the ones that are going to go first. So you have basically a choice as a landlord. Do I want to sit here on, on an asset and hold my rates firm and try to get, bleed the most money I can out of this? Or do I want to make the investment to facilitate that environment I want to be in that building? And I, I think the research park does an amazing job doing that. And I think that's why it's so sought after. Well, I, think, I was thinking a lot of when you were talking there about Evolve One and that alignment, right? I mean, we you know, the, the tenants of Evolve One are not only aligned with what the University Research Park wants, but they're also aligned with the goals of Evolve One as a building and trying to, you know, nobody wants to be the tenant that messes up the environmental footprint of Evolve One, right? They all want to say, ah, it's, you know, so even though they're not inherently sustainable product companies or something like that, they're not building an eco company per se, Mm-hmm. they've all kind of gotten on board because they're like, yeah, we don't want it to fail because of us. We mm-hmm. want to be, we, we've, we've made it now part of our culture. Right. So, um, and we're trying to push more of that. And I think that's another thing I think we're going to see in, in new buildings and, and hopefully retrofitted buildings is an increased emphasis on climate change action. Um, and how are we, you know, new builds meeting the standards of evolve one or better retrofitting buildings like we're doing at 375 Hagee with the solar carport that's going in there. Um, you know, I think collectively we need to be, we need to see tenants uh, and and other actors pushing for better development and better retrofit. So when a building does get upgraded, mm-hmm. let's make sure those upgrades are, are really taking climate action and doing something positive, not just, you know, putting some new cladding on something uh, and saying, hey, look, it's shinier now than it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, no, this building is, is actually better than it was yesterday in terms of addressing some of the really significant uh, impacts that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope that we'll start to see that shift too as highly qualified talent mm-hmm. is getting like companies are competing for the best. And so the talent will start to say, well, I want to work for a company that cares about climate change. And then those companies are going to turn around and say, well, we want to lease space from a landlord that cares about climate change. (laughs) Um, And we'll start to see those improvements, I hope, happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and this is where things are driven by thought leaders, right? I mean, both of you folks represent organizations that are clearly thought leaders that are focused on things like climate change, which, which, which goes way beyond the, the, the triple bottom line, right? On that note, do you see the, um, from, from both your own organization's perspectives, as well as your client's perspective, do you now see a push towards um, A, transparency in terms of utilization of space and making it public knowledge, and B, you know, things like ESG, um, utilization of your footprint, the impact that it has on society, the, the governance element of it, the, the carbon footprint element of it. Will there be an emphasis on, on, on transparency as well as holistic, um, uh, the, the holistic footprint? Do you see that, that trend slowly shifting? Yeah, I, I think as we get away of the preset desks, I think you're going to find as I mentioned before, just more transient space that you come, you spend some time in, and then you move on to facilitate whatever work you need to be done next. Um, overall, what we're seeing in the market is people are shrinking their, their footprint a little bit, um, primarily due to a, a good portion of their staff being uh, in a flexible work environment where they can work multiple 
Um, but they are still wanting that space to bring everyone together. So it's kind of a catch-22. They want enough space to have everyone in for a town hall, to have those, those discussions, those collaboration, those meetings, those town halls, those big year-end celebrations. They want the space to be able to facilitate that. But at the same time, they want to reduce their footprint so they can have less space, to have more meaningful space and, and utilize it as such. Um, so, yeah, I think we are going to see people shrink. But again, you might see people go the other way and take more space. But those spaces will be for amenities as opposed to just more desks. Um, so, again, just I guess long story short, I, I feel the office will be better thought out and have more meaningful space in it than just four walls, a bunch of desks and a cafeteria. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think uh, I think we're going to see, I mean, you know, space was already kind of entering into a really interesting place w well before the pandemic, right? You know, companies were doing some pretty, some of them maybe were outlandish things, some of them were super creative things, um, you know, but they were using their space to set the tone and they were using their space to sort of identify the kinds of things they were hoping to happen there, mm. um, you know, uh, the, the example I might give is like Google Spaces was really fun and creative and kind of whimsical. If you went to maybe Magnet Forensics office that deals largely with police forces and the FBI and stuff, it was a little bit more sober. Right. Um, there was no slides and kind of wacky things. It was a little bit of a different tone because they set a different tone. It's it, it was it fit that who they were as an organization, right? And it was it was really. But now I think it's going to it's going to even amp up even more. Right. I, I think space is going to become much more important. Mm. Um, and I agree with Keith. It's going to get more well thought out. I think that we're going to start focusing on the question of what do we want to happen here? Yeah. And then how do we design the space to make the things we want happen happen? Mm -hmm. um, and and so I think I, hopefully people are going to start digging into that question a little bit deeper about what do we want this space to achieve for us beyond just being a place to go and work? Yeah. 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 On that note, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Kid. No, I was just going to say, uh, I, we're, we're at the early stages with one company here. They're, they're going very progressive. Their vision is I don't want any desks in here. I just want kind of some couches, some lounge areas, some closed collaboration space. I don't want any desks. He said, if anything, one of those long tables that you dinner at with everyone. He's like, I, if I could have a big dinner table, we said everyone had our company on, that'll be our desk. Um, so that was kind of his vision and it was, it was neat to see. And you know what, I think people are gonna do more of that stuff. Like I said, just couches, whatever, more chill vibe. And again, it has to fit with your company. I mean, you're not gonna have a lawyer firm do this, obviously, um, but that's, that's a neat and eclectic thing about the tech system, ecosystem here is, we're going to see both ends of the spectrum and we're going to see some really cool stuff happen in the next 12 months. And it's pretty exciting. Nice. Yeah. As a 43 year old with like lower back issues, I'm like no desk, but, but, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's, that's the thing too, is it's going to be interesting to see how it shifts right over time. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it poses the question, right. As to, do you go with the pulse of the market or do you set the tone? Because at the end of the day, there is a fair amount of onus on on thought leaders, right? On, on organizations like RT Park and JLL to sort of set the tone and say, this is the blue ocean strategy we are going to take because we know best. Um, and I think the, the, the fine balance between figuring out, like you said, Mike, on the figuring out the pathway after the walk has been made on the fresh green grass versus laying the path and telling people, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be interesting, right? Uh, how, how you folks like you find the balance um, and tell the world how to do it. Um, yeah, I, I feel like you're going to have people over the next kind of 18 to 24 months really try some things on for size to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, um, many companies that had expiries during the pandemic likely only extended them for a short period of time. So I think you'll start seeing companies try different models out and different office environments out to see what works for them. Um, you know what, what the pandemic has created, which isn't usually an option for a lot of companies is there's some really great sublease space out there that you can get that's full turnkey. 
mm-hmm. and you can get it for 16, 18, 20 to four months and say, hey, you know what, let's go try this out. This was a former big tech company's office. It obviously worked for them. Maybe it'll work for us. And if not, we're back to the drawing board and there's no skin off our back because it was a sublease, right? So uh, I think that's a very interesting option. And it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. You know, we have this discussion with our landlords all the time. Do you build uh, your standard base build out uh, for uh, a suite in your office buildings or do you wait for people to come to you? And, you know, what are some common themes across all tenants and that they want and i mean biggest thing you'll see is obviously natural light open concept is pretty general for most tech companies around this these parts i mean if you get into lawyers and whatnot it's a little different but yeah having access to that kind of second generation space that has a lot of the investment put into it already allows companies to kind of try things on for size or even for example JLL, we are looking for a permanent home and a permanent office, but you know we had six to twelve months to, to that we needed a home. So now we're in a co-working space, and co-working space is a great option for people, um, especially if you're really trying to figure out what your back to the office looks like or what your office even looks like come twelve months down the road. So lots of options out there for people to try some some things on for. Some. Yeah. Well, and, and let's be clear too. We're we're really s- still talking about a certain type of of environment, right? I mean, which what I'm really interested to see is, you know, and, and Keith, you know this well. Our our industrial advanced manufacturing lab space is like at a critically low level, hmm. um, and you know, how's that going to change given the the profile of the companies that are coming out of the AC and velocity right now? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the questions is going to be really around like, it's great to talk about office and, and sort of desk work, but how does that profile change when a lot of what we're seeing isn't maybe not going to be those types of companies anymore? Because we don't, you can't really get that creative with manufacturing space or lab space. I mean, you sort of need the fume hoods and the benches to be in certain places. There's a lot more standards and a lot more regulation. Mm-hmm. And so where are we going to be in kind of two years, three years from now, when a lot of the companies that are at Velocity or at coming out of the AC have a very different profile from the companies that came out in the last few years, right? So True, true. Yeah, yeah. Mike hit a very good point on the head is is the life sciences piece of, of KW is what will be really interesting uh, to watch over the next. And it's back to what I said about the chicken and the egg. You know, lab space, especially bio lab space, is so expensive to build out. Uh, and you can't really expect a startup company to be able to afford that. But if you're if you're a thought leader as far as a landlord's concerned, can you put up something that's cost four hundred dollars per square foot to put in a building and just hope that someone comes and leases it from you? That's a big pill to swallow. So I mean, it's yeah. it's going to take some thought leaders. Um, I think the first person, our first landlord to do it in KW will, and well, when done right, uh, mm-hmm. we'll we'll have long term success with it. And especially in those kind of, as Mike said, you know, a little lab, our a lot of lab component, a lot of maker space with that little office component at the front. And yeah, it, it it's. It's a weird spot to be in because you want people to do it and you know there's people out there that need it, but it's just bridging that gap into making it an economic viable situation is, is tough. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and so it sounds like flexibility is the is the buzzword, right? Is there opportunity for flexibility as far as lease plans are concerned? Is, is that a thing now? We're definitely seeing more flexibility than before. As, as mentioned, those sublease spaces, you kind of have the, the benefit of most of them being three to three or under years from expiry already. Um, you are seeing landlords, if, if a space is what we call turnkey, so you move in, you drop down your desks and get and go, that's where we'll see a little more flexibility. If you go to a landlord and say, hey, I need two office built, I need a kitchenette built over here and I need this built over here and I want this amenity here, that's where you're going to start to get into conversations of your traditional five plus year leases. So um, it really depends on that kind of second generation space. If a landlord has that available, yes, there's more flexibility. Um, Obviously with co-working, you can have some very flexible options that give you kind of that white glove service where everything's taken care of for you and you just 
actually bring a laptop and set up. So um, as far as flexibility, it is there, but it's got to be within reason, obviously. A landlord isn't going to go ahead and build you out the perfect office for you and say, oh, yeah, I'll do it on a one-year lease. It's just, it, it's tough. And and you as a company should want that investment. Uh, like if I'm going to build out something that's perfect for my company, do I want to give up in, on it in a year? Probably not. Like I right. said, trying out second generation space, um, just seeing how it works for you is probably the best way to get flexibility as well as some high balls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and is Mike, from your perspective, Collisions are such a big driver of innovation, right? Which, which historically has happened in physical spaces. Um, do you see? Do you do you foresee an uptick in the co-working style of engagement between organizations um, to make that happen? At least in the short term, is that a I trend mean, you see coming? I, I hope so. I mean, you know, when I when I talk to the folks in the research park, one of the big shifts has been, you know, years ago there was a lot of anxiety around uh, talent poaching and intellectual property stuff. And and so companies were really not keen to Mm. see uh, employees interacting with with folks from other companies, right? Mm. And I think what I'm starting to notice now is there's there's a real shift in that. People are sort of saying, no, we wanna connect with people in other companies. We wanna understand how things are different. And I think one of the big shifts in that is realizing that if people don't like working for you, they're gonna leave. It, right. You can't you can't shield them and pretend that other com- there's no other company in town for you to go to. You know, everybody knows that nobody's the only game in town, and so the shift has gone now from sort of saying we need to shelter employees and keep them from from going to sh- now sort of saying, listen, we're going to try and do our best to create an awesome experience. Mm-hmm. People will love it and stay, or it's not going to resonate with them, and they're going to go. But we can't con- like to Keith's point. Not everybody's going to be happy all the time, and it's okay. Right. We're going to try and do our best to do that. Um, but we are seeing now companies are coming to me and saying, we love the rec leagues because it gets us interacting with people we don't see on a day-to-day basis. Or we love right. the beer garden. Or we, we love the opportunities to connect with people that we don't get to work with because it kind of reinvigorates us. And it gives us a sense of belonging to a community that's more than just our team and more than just our company. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, you talk to some big enterprise companies and people who are located in Waterloo, even this goes back years, this isn't pandemic. They are sort of saying, no, my whole team is elsewhere. Like yeah. they're in Belgium, they're in the US or wherever. Like I'm, I'm one or two people or three or four people, but the rest of our team is global. So we actually feel isolated within our own 200 person company. Because we don't work with them. So the opportunity to get out and play volleyball with them or the opportunity to just meet them socially right after work gets us meeting people in our own company that we never actually got to see. So these are sort of enterprise level problems. But I do hear that a lot from companies that they want to get out and interact more with the community and feel like they're a part of something beyond their own walls. Yeah. We're out of time. On a parting note... Quick question to both of you, right? There's so much talk about the future of work has changed, right? And and this is the new norm, whatever that is. I personally believe that, you know, as as a race or as as a species or as a community, there's a bunch of things we've accomplished because we are together physically, right? My personal belief is from remote to hybrid, we will eventually go back to being together. We just gravitate towards being with people. Um, so I personally don't believe that there is a new norm as far as remote work is concerned. I think we'll eventually find and meander our way towards being together with people. What are your beliefs, personal beliefs, right? Yeah, I, I, I've been working remotely or, or had the option to work remotely for probably the past eight years of my professional life. So, I mean, like you mentioned, it's not new. Um, mm-hmm. Do I want to come in the office every day? Absolutely. Um, for every reason, every reason you've mentioned, we are pack animals at the end of the day. Um, so is remote work going to leave? No, I think for a select uh, portion of, of the population, it's going to be what works for them. And there's various reasons for that. 
But I, I do foresee that companies will allow you the flexibility, but provide you with the ability to go into the office whenever you like, not whenever you like, but on some sort of cadence. Mm-hmm. And they will entice you to come back, whether it's through amenities, whether it's through having a great company culture, having a great office, uh, and you know, expanding your your thoughts be, beyond the brick and mortar, providing mini leagues or whatnot, providing those services to entice people to come back. And I, I think people will gravitate to going back to the office. Um, as I mentioned before, the office needs to be more thought out. It needs to be aligned with your company vision. And as Mike said, you know, there's going to be some people that don't align with your company vision. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, is that the person you want on your team representing your company? Um, so I, I think the office will definitely go back to into person and a good portion of the employees will come back to the office. It'll be interesting to see what companies do with it and how they keep staff there and how they use us as kind of a, a springboard to really show off what they can do and with space in general, as well as with their office and what environments they foster. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I would tend to agree. I mean, you know, people are super social. I'm, I'm in a unique position because I'm a department of one person. I don't have a team per se. Uh, and so what was interesting to me about the pandemic was I realized how much my work and my personal social life were, were intertwined because I just was able to go and meet people all the time as part mm-hmm. of my job. And so by the time I came home at the end of the day, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm done. I don't, you know? Um, and, uh, that shifted dramatically because I went into the pandemic mode and, you know, meetings kind of came to a halt because I didn't run into people. I wasn't out in environments. I wasn't hanging out at the accelerator center, just running into people as much. Mm-hmm. And so it went, became very, very isolating. Um, and so for me, I had to rethink my entire way of interacting with people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I hear it all the time from people that they want to go, they miss people and their teams were a big part of their personal life. They weren't just coworkers, you know, um, they were friends. They were people that meant something and those interactions were really important and they extended well beyond the workplace. Um, I don't think that's going away. It might change a little bit, but ultimately people are still going to want to be around people mm-hmm. in some capacity. Um, and so I think work facilitates a lot of that, right? It was a huge mm-hmm. part of the social fabric of a community and mm-hmm. that's not going to go away. Yep. Makes sense. You both touched upon something that I will definitely reflect on, which is to, you know, l- listen to the, your stakeholders, listen to your staff, um, on a, on the last piece of advice that you want to leave the podcast with, what would be the one advice that you'd give to folks, specifically entrepreneurs, because that's going to be the audience here largely, uh, with what not to do, given what we've experienced over the last, I don't know, 18 months? Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to speak to kind of the, the startup folks is, you know, identify what you want your company culture to be and what you want it to represent and stay true to that. And obviously that's a moving target as you grow, but honest and open, transparent conversation with your staff and, and moving that forward. And, you know, you, you vote with your dollars. So finding a landlord that aligns with, with your thoughts and visions on how you want space to be um, can save a lot of headache in the future. And like I said, 330, 300, focus on the 300 piece and the three and the 30 will fall into place. Um, so focus on your staff first and making sure they have the tools they need to do their job. And then the office space is just a bonus. It, it, it's, yeah, F- focus on the $300 lever, not the 30 and $3 lever. Nice. Yeah, I think I, I tend to agree. I mean, really focusing on, on those being transparent, having ongoing open conversations. I think the only other thing that I would, would qualify that with is don't assume you know what's going on with employees and that just because you're open and transparent about what's going on with the work situation, that they're going to be open and transparent about what their situation is. Um, an example through the pandemic, for example, is domestic violence really spiked. And that's going to sound like I'm making this on a sad note, but 
if someone's in a bad situation, they may not tell you and they shouldn't have to. So always make sure that like for many people, workplaces are a safe place Mm -hmm. and a place where there's camaraderie and a place where they feel like they can go to be safe. And I always think people should have that as an option, right? So one thing is never assume you know what's going on with an employee and always make sure that you are providing them the options, not dictating those options for them. Yeah, well, well said. It might, lots of topics that we didn't touch upon, politically charged topics like vaccination, should they be mandated in the building, etc. But let's save that for another day. Uh, lots of interesting room and topics that we covered today. So I personally, as well as on behalf of the organization, really want to thank you folks for not just the, not just the time and the bandwidth, because you've, you know, you've allocated time for this, but also for, for the insights, right? And I really hope our audience uh, resonates with some of the learnings that they go take away uh, from, from this conversation. So again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you and look forward to uh, doing this again. Yes, thanks, Jay. Thanks, My man. pleasure as well, as always. Great to see you both. Thank you so much. Thank you.